morning and welcome to our class podcast for American Writers 2, 1865 to the present. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today we're discussing none of the things on my slide. Uh, we're discussing <laughs> the stories of Sherwood Anderson from Winesburg, Ohio. Uh, we're looking at hands and adventure. Let's meet the rest of the panel. <laughs> so tell us your name, your major, and if you wrote a book about your hometown, who is one person that you would include? Is it a Wing Biddlebaum person? Is it a George Willard person? This is a tough question. I'm going to pose it to Haley first. Uh, hi, I'm Haley. I'm an English major. And if I had to write a book about my hometown, it would probably be about my um, English teachers. They're really interesting people. Um, one of them staged an actual Lord of the Flies experiment in our classroom where they had on the board like things to do, but then they sat silently reading the entire time and just let the class go to chaos. So I'd probably have one of them as it, so. I think that's awesome. <laughs> it was really cool. That's a good answer. Dylan, what do you think? Um, so I'm Dylan. Um, I'm a business management major. Um, if I wrote a book about someone from my hometown, I would honestly probably pick my senior year um, English teacher. I took academic English my senior year, like a lot of seniors do. And you're like, oh, like this is going to be a breeze kind of deal. But this guy like actually made us work a lot. I mean, it was actually a very productive class and he got like so in depth about and we read the hobbit and like just like the hero's journey and i mean yeah. he had like definitely been through a lot in his life like his wife is like battling cancer he had like two kids he's just a really good guy um so honestly him he definitely had a big impact on me that's so. cool all right ricky what do you think well i'm ricky i'm a history major and mine would probably be my one of my history teachers in high school when I was a sophomore and junior, he was an ex-military, ex-cop turned history teacher. Nice. And it, he had some really interesting views on some things because he had a completely different perspective than most people, especially when talking about, you know, certain policies and wars and stuff like that. Interesting. Yeah. So some weird English teachers and some uh, very in <laughs> interesting, I can imagine a PTSD kind of <laughs> experience. That's cool. I was probably going to think of either uh, our local newspaper guy. So we had a tiny local newspaper and I thought he was an interesting dude. Uh, or this woman, her name, I'm pretty sure her name was Reva. I knew she was related to someone that I went to school with, but she would walk uh, everywhere. She walked everywhere in our small town and she would dress like two the nines every day. She was dressed in the highest heels I've ever seen and the biggest hair I've ever seen. She was sort of like a Dolly Parton figure in my life. And I just have so many questions about who she was and what was she doing? <laughs> and where did she get her shoes? Those are all questions I had. Cool. All right, that was a weird one, but I'm glad we, we did it. And it's gonna lead nicely into our conversation about Winesburg, Ohio. Uh, so just as a quick reminder of our elements of modernism, I think by now we've all got them down. Uh, we've been talking about them for you know a week and a half now. So which of those kind of things of modernism do you think best describes these stories? 
Haley, what do you think? Um, immediately, I think of the influence of modernity on adventure. Oh, um, yeah. We're going to see exactly the fact that if there was not a city and it wasn't modern, the story probably wouldn't have taken place the way it did. So I think yeah. the influence of modernity is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got this contrast of a small town and a big city. And if there weren't big cities, the story wouldn't happen, right? It would be completely different. Good eye, Haley. Dylan, what do you think? I would say um, doubt or criticism of institution. Yeah. Um, just kind of dealing with um, Wing's past yeah. and kind of what he's been through and how he, um, you know, has been come to know or come to be the person he is, you know, in the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what institution do you think is being criticized or doubted there? Is it education maybe, or? Maybe the like education system, but also, I don't even know if this would be a system, but like the, the area there, the town that he's in. Yeah. Um, I guess local institution. I get it. I get it. I see what you mean. Definitely one, well, maybe I don't, I don't want to steal Ricky's answer. So I'm going to save it. Ricky, what do you think? <laughs> I was going to say doubt or criticism too, but of like public opinion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the court of public opinion. Yeah. Like everyone thought Wing was this terrible guy because one guy came out and said something that. Yeah. Was... Oh, sorry. My internet connection's unstable. But... I hear you, though. I heard you. I got you. Um, one guy came out and said that, you know, he, he, he started beating him up because he was touching his son. If you hear that in the court of yeah. public opinion. Yeah. You don't know what to think. Yeah. And the guy wasn't doing anything in that sense at all. But that's not how the public thinks. Of yeah. And then he kind of spends the rest of his time in, in Winesburg, Ohio, uh, being ostracized and unsure what to do with himself and that public opinion kind of driving everything. Yeah. How about the criticism of the institution of like, marriage and virginity and et cetera in, in adventure. Uh, she acts in, in accordance with norms. It's a perfectly normal way to behave. Uh, and yet it becomes, it's completely absurd that she kind of devotes her entire life to this person. Um, so we can talk about that some more when we get to the story. I like it. I wanted to talk about experiments in language because of a thing that uh, Anderson said about this book and about his writing in general. So uh, in the head note from the anthology, this is from Anderson's autobiography. Uh, he was inspired by Gertrude Stein's collection of poetry called Tender Buttons, which I, I don't remember if I'm gonna make you read it, but it's worth reading about for 30 seconds, uh, probably longer if you like it. But if you don't like it, it's fine. But 30 seconds will get you the sense of what Tender Buttons is like. Um, and he describes it as something purely experimental, dealing in words separated from sense in the ordinary meaning of the word sense, an approach I was sure that poets must often be compelled to make. Was it an approach that would help me? I decided to try it. So I wondered if you, first of all, know what that phrase means, words separated from sense. And if that makes any sense, where might he be doing that in the story? What might it mean to be, to look at language as, as separated from sense? 
Um, could it be like words having double meanings? So like yeah. the fact that like um, an adventure isn't actually what you would consider an adventure or, you know, um, touching kids is actually like, it means two different things, but like the latter is like the worst. Yes, I think that's a really good way of thinking of it, Haley. And and there's so much doubt about what, there's a word hands and a word touch, but we have given it so many senses that the story kind of, you have to separate them. Like you cannot, you don't really know what the, the meaning is. Okay, so some doubt on some words. I like that idea. Any other reactions to that? It's kind of a hard question, but would love to hear what you think. Well, that's kind of the beauty of writing yeah. is you don't know necessarily the tone how they're saying it so it's kind of up to interpretation yeah 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 that makes sense and so the experiment is uh maybe the author saying well i don't really have to foreclose any interpretation i don't have to tell you what it means you as the reader sort of get to decide as you go. I like that idea. Dylan, you want to add anything before we go on? Honestly, I was going to say the same thing um, yeah. as Haley, just, you know, like touching kids, like that could obviously like, there's two ways you could think of that. Yeah. And going off, you know, what Richie said, like, it's up for interpretation. Um, I feel like every author kind of wants, you know, wants everybody to or wants people to think differently. Some people are going to think, you know, one thing, some people are going to lean towards, you know, the other way, but that's, that's just writing. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah, Dylan, I think that's interesting to bring up because I don't think that that's actually all writers all the time. You know, some of our older writers, especially people who are reformists, they would be writing in the realist style saying, I need you to read it this way because I need you to act on it in this way and like change a, a law, a policy, uh, some, like the jungle, right? There's not a lot of room for interpretation in the jungle. But yeah, I think the modernists especially are, are kind of doubting even the institution of reading, doubting the institution of writing. <laughs> what is it and what is it for? And how can we maybe empower readers in ways that maybe we uh, older writers didn't do? That's interesting. Okay, cool. I think maybe some other words divorced from sense or separated from sense might be uh, like love. That word love could have a multiplicity of meanings and we don't quite know what it might mean. Dreams, that might be another one of those multiplicity kind of words. I think that's a really cool way to look at it. All right, let's talk about Winesburg, Ohio kind of as a collection and then we'll get into the stories themselves. So this, uh, at the beginning of adventure, somewhere in adventure, <laughs> Anderson describes Alice uh, as having a placid exterior behind which there's this continual ferment. And I think that's a really great description of what this whole collection of stories is about. That there's kind of like a small town, it looks kind of quiet. It, there's like berry picking and like every, there's an exterior. And then underneath that exterior is like this fermenting, rotting, boiling, disgusting thing. Um, does that sound right to your experience of small towns? Anybody come from a small town like me? <laughs> or nah? 
no small towners. Haley, you're from Pittsburgh. Dylan, you're from Pittsburgh. Ricky, you're I, from Georgia. I'd say my town is like, it wasn't like, didn't have like a super small town feel, but it definitely had that same feel. Like, you know, sometimes things look a lot better than what they are. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. there's a, like there's deeper, you know, like at least in my town, like there are definitely people who, you know, there's people who are pretty wealthy and, yeah. you know, they put on a face and everybody looks happy, but you know, like, there's more to people, you know, everyone has things going on in their life. Um, everybody's struggling with something most likely. Yeah. 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 I think that's good. So those of you who are with us today, looking at my PowerPoint, you can see the cover of the book with this kind of famous image of uh, a woman in the grass kind of laying down and looking towards a house kind of a desperate pose. I don't know. Um, do you get anything from this image about that idea of a, a placid exterior with a continual ferment? Does this image do anything for you? Is it familiar I, to you? Have you seen it before, Haley? Sorry. I've seen it before. I actually didn't even realize that this was the cover. I've seen this many times before. Yeah. And it definitely makes me think a lot of um, Alice. Like, Yes. Very yeah. her energy the entire time. Yes. Yeah. Laying in the grass, sort of like looking outward, looking somewhere else. Uh, but a, a lot of emptiness, a lot of open space, and then a few little <laughs> buildings and dwellings. So uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. Okay, great. Here's another idea uh, that kind of organizes this book that I think is worth talking about. Uh, and that's the very first chapter, which is called The Book of the Grotesque. Um, and I didn't ask you to read it. It's not in our anthology. But um, I found a PDF that I shared with Dylan, and I'll share with everybody else so you can read it if you want to. Um, but he kind of sets up a frame story for all of these stories that will be collected together uh, under the idea of the grotesque. And so the, the way the story goes is that there's a, an author and he's dying. And in his last moments, he wants to write this book of the grotesque. Um, and there are these sort of like images marching in front of him about all the grotesque people he's ever known and he wants to write them down. Um, so it, it says in the beginning when the world was young, there were a great many thoughts, but no such thing as a truth. Man made the truths himself and each truth was a composite of a great many vague thoughts. All about in the world were the truths and they were all beautiful. This sounds to me like what we just said about maybe a doubt of language, the word truth, maybe being an experiment on the word truth. Maybe there's no sense in truth. But just from reading that kind of quotation, how do you relate it to the stories that we read? Are there some, are there some doubts about truth in these stories? Dylan is nodding in the podcast realm. <laughs> Go ahead. I definitely think there is doubt about truth um, in both stories. Definitely, I feel like core examples in, in both. Yeah, so man making a truth that they're like clung to or someone telling the truth and there's doubt about whether that truth is true. Yeah, Haley, any reactions to that? Um, yeah, definitely I agree the questioning of truth and um, also I think his use of beautiful and love like with grotesque images are really interesting. We see a lot of beauty in these pieces, but it's interesting that his aim was being grotesque. 
Right. And so there's an interesting definition of grotesque for him. So we've we've probably used that word before to mean like gross, mm -hmm. uh, deformed sometimes. Uh, sometimes grotesque is attached to disability in ways that are problematic um, and, and, and different. But Anderson has a very specific way of thinking about why, uh, grotesque, and that is sort of people being defined by one characteristic. And the, the image I often use is like a fisheye lens. So when you look at someone and like their nose is enormous, but it's not really, it just looks like it through this lens, or I zoom in really hard on just one part of your body, um, it would be the same for this sort of grotesque character in, in Winesburg, Ohio. So each of the characters has one thing about them that is so completely out of proportion that they become obsessed or they become uh, somehow deformed by their, their focus on this one thing. Does that sound right? On our two characters, like especially Wing and Alice, do you want to say something quickly about that? Well, I'm going to ask you in a minute, so don't don't answer that question. <laughs> All right, let's go into hands first. Um, uh, Dylan, I think you volunteered to to summarize this one. Give us the quick overview. Okay, so hands um, takes place in the small town of um, Winesburg. Ohio, yeah. <laughs> Wing Biddlebaum is this old man um, kind of living in like this small old house, uh, living a quiet life. Talks about him like picking berries in the fields. Um, when he talks, he always is like doing something with his hands, like specifically like beating them um, against like stumps or, or wood or anything that's near him. Um, he has... He's friends with George Willard, who's a, a reporter. Um, and he's like, in the story, like, that's really his only friend. Um, and George, you know, he begins to wonder why, um, why Wing is always doing something with his hands and why he always seems like so uncomfortable. Um, and then one day, um, Wing, like begins to um, touch George and then he becomes very uncomfortable. Um, after this talks about uh, the past, Wing's past. Um, and in the past, his, his real name was Adolf Myers. He was a teacher at a school in Pennsylvania. Um, he was, he always would like, he just taught with his hands. Like it just seems like he's someone that just talks with them, you know? Which, you know, I, I feel like I know a lot of people who do the same thing. Perhaps um, your instructor. <laughs> right. Um, in the text, it says, um, as he talked, his voice became soft and musical. There is a caress in that also, in a way that the voice and, and the hands, the stroking of the shoulders and the touching of the hair were a part of the schoolmaster's effort to carry a dream into the young minds. So his intention was to like motivate or to inspire his students. Yeah. Um, but then one day um, he was accused of like being inappropriate with his students. Um, all that news got out, kind of exploded in his face. Um, he got beat up by one of the student's fathers. Um, and then basically 
he ended up in Winesburg um, trying to escape, I guess, that part of his life. Yeah, changed um, his name, escaped it all. Yeah, that's very good, very good. Yeah, I think you got it all. I just picked up another word that gets repeated to the point where it might lose sense, which was caress, right? Caress, which is a word that could have a lot of different meanings, could have a lot of different interpretations. Uh, very good, very good. Um, so what's his one thing that's out of proportion? If you had to like fisheye lens on, on wing, what are his, what's his one thing? Say it, you know it. Hands. His hands, obviously, right? It's the title of the story. It's like the metaphor, right? It's the bird, it's the pounding, like everything that his hands do, um, they're out of proportion. And Haley, you had a couple of questions kind of about his hands. Um, go for it, ask them. So I was questioning in the story if his hands are supposed to be a gift or a curse. Um, mm -hmm. I want to hear people's opinions. Mm -hmm. Like, do they help him or hurt him more in his life? Good question. Let's turn it out to the team. Uh, I've been picking on Dylan, but Ricky, why don't you try it the first time? I think, I think they're more of a curse just because at the beginning they were a gift. And then once everything came out with his old town, it forced him to basically abandon the place where he lived and worked. And then he came to a new town and his, his hands were always had to be hidden yeah. and everything like this. And I think he looked at them as a curse and that he couldn't do anything right if they were out. Yeah. Dylan, thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely think um, his hands, unfortunately, are kind of like the downfall of him, um, which is kind of ironic because he was, he taught with his hands. He, that was just like a part of who he was. And he probably did that over and over repetition over and over and over again. And I'm sure he probably was a positive influence on a lot of people's lives, but because of that one mistake, it just totally cost him everything. And it's not very clear if it is a thing he actually did or not. It, it almost does, well, I've got that question later, so I'll save it for my, <laughs> I'll save it for later. But there's definitely some doubt about what his hands actually did and what he did. Uh, Haley, what do you think? You wanna, you wanna maybe take the gift side? Is there a gift? I was gonna say the reason that I even posed that it could be a gift is that it also gave him all the success to continue in his life. So he got his position as a teacher because he could inspire students through his hands but also he became a farmer that could sustain his life because he was so good at picking yeah so the only reason he really is where he is today is because of his hands also yeah well not really the hands it's the other people it's that court of public opinion that ricky brought up right right ricky that was you yeah i've already forgotten <laughs> Yeah, it really has nothing to do with the hands themselves, but the meaning that people place on it. And that is, my friends, social construction theory. <laughs> it doesn't really matter about the object, but the meaning that people kind of create about it. Uh, and Haley, you also were interested in kind of his reaction to the past and how that uh, weighs on him. Talk more about that, Haley. Yeah, so I was really interested by his character because um, Obviously, he seemed to be very, like, this kind of thing that happened to him changed the whole way he lived. It seemed to be a stress on him. 
but also the same way he was very naive about his situation. Um, so do you think that Wing was naive about his past and kind of the way that he assumes like it has, he says, I assume it has something to do with his hands. Like he doesn't know, or do you think the stress actually weighs on him because he hides his hands a lot? That's kind of the question. That is a good question. And the way, way I'm hearing it is like, he's acting like it's a big mystery as to yeah. why he got beat up and run out of town. But it's like, not that mysterious. Uh, so maybe that's what you mean by naive, right? He's like, he's acting like he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, reactions to that. Ricky, why don't you go first? Yeah, well, that kind of leads like back to what you were saying about like, whether he did it or not. Yeah. Like the mystery of we don't know what happened. I feel like that kind of painted the picture in my mind that it didn't happen because he has no idea why he was beat up and all that. So, yeah, yeah. But I think the stress probably weighs on him because he's worried that someone else, I mean, he probably has PTSD from getting beat up, like if I'm being yeah. honest. Like, and he seems very concerned that he's going to repeat the thing that he did that got him beat up, uh, which makes me think. Maybe he did do the thing. I don't know. Dylan, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I definitely think um, he's like, he feels the stress. Like, you know, in the situation with George, he like freaks out. Like he has to totally, he has to leave. Like he has to remove himself from the situation because- he touched his shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. Because he he is having, maybe he's having, you know, PTSD from when he got beat up. Maybe he's having it from- you know, just being removed yeah. from yeah. his position. Yeah. And, it, and if it came from his hands, then anything that he does with them is going to be like slippery slope, lead me right into uh, the same problem. Yeah. But then I kind of like, but why, it makes me think like, why is he still, if, if he didn't do anything, like, why does he feel like this still? Yeah, I think maybe, Haley, that's what you're getting at with naive too, right? If he did nothing wrong, why does he feel so bad? Yeah, or why does he say, I assume it was my hands? I mean, they literally were beating you up and saying at the exact same time, it's because you touched my kid. Don't touch my kid. I mean, it was pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing to assume there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, this was the type of modernism when they were like, as clear as realists can be. Yeah. Ricky, what do you think? You kind of had your hand up a second ago. Yeah, I got the sense that like George was the first person he really ever told yeah. about this in, in this new town. And so he was worried how George might react to it. And so Ooh. I feel like that's that added the stress and everything. You know what? This is a really important detail in the story. Nobody tells anybody the this, this story about Wing's past. The narrator tells the reader, but George never asks. So this is information George does not have. And in fact, nobody in town has. So that's interesting too, right? It still remains a mystery to George, the, the reporter, because that information is not public knowledge. Um, does that change anything for you, Ricky, to know that like George never gets the answer for why his new friend has this mm -hmm. reaction? Yeah, that changes everything. Yeah. Like now, because like, it, it talks about how um, he would always hit his hands on the fences or the brick logs or whatever. So maybe George thinks he's just some crazy person. 
Yeah, like, and he, he does get, like, there's something wrong, he says, but I don't know what it is. His hands have something to do with his fear of me and everyone, but he does not know what and he does not ask. He even says something like, I won't ask him about his hands. I can see how terrified this is, so I won't. Yeah, so the reporter in the town doesn't get the story. Just you, the reader. Maybe that's an experiment in form. That's never, I mean, I don't know if that's ever happened before, but like, that's also what we call dramatic irony where the readers know things that the other people don't. Um, okay, I wanna get to some of your uh, other questions too. So Dylan, you asked about this particular line within the, like the climax scene, the moment where he's giving this information to George. Uh, read the quote and then tell us what you wanted to ask. The quote is, you must try to forget all you have learned. You must begin to dream. From this time on, you must shut your ears to the roaring of the voices. I honestly, like, I don't know what this means. So that's why I asked the question. Like, I, I'm a little confused on it. That's um, fair. That because is fair. I just feel like, I don't know, he could have said so many other things that I, I would have been able to, you know, maybe pick apart and say like, oh, okay, like, I could see yeah. why he said, but yeah. to me, I don't know, it was yeah. kind of a little. And it doesn't seem to actually be in, in context. So the scene is, they he was about to ask him, what's up with your hands? They're walking in a field, Wing just kind of like stops and then says, you're destroying yourself. You have the inclination to be alone and dream and you're afraid of dreams. You want to be like others in town here. You hear them talk and you try to imitate them. And then he like goes into a dream. And then he comes back out of the dream and he says uh, this, this quote, right? About dreams. I don't know. Uh, Haley, you got an idea? Um, I think out of, when he's talking to George, we don't know anything about his past. So it's kind of interesting because it really doesn't make sense at all. I could imagine George being like, what, what am I listening to? What are they talking about? <laughs> and, um, but then I, I do kind of understand it more once we have the context of his story, because he's like a very dream, like imagined, like he goes into this zone when he's like teaching young boys. So he kind of does that with George, right. at least that's what's described to us. And so it seems like he is saying that like, no, you should, you should not be a realist like I like I'm out of the dream I'm like out of this kind of educational place you should be in that place I don't I don't know yeah. but also he's talking about roaring voices and like to ignore them and so it's kind of like his situation where he was like beat up and so he was like ignoring what they were saying and like kind of moving on yeah. a lot of things a lot of things well the dream itself is about uh, men living in a pastoral golden age Across a green open country came clean-limbed young men, some afoot, some mounted on horses. In crowds, the young men came together to gather about the feet of an old man who sat beneath a tree in a tiny garden who talked to them. Um, is that Wing's vision of like what he wishes the world could be like? That all these the beautiful young men would come to him and then he would teach them, and give them wisdom? This is the wisdom he has to impart. What do you think, Ricky? Any reaction to that idea? Well, I think that's that's his dream is to be able to teach again and influence a bunch, a lot, a lot of the kids and educate them. Yeah. And that he can't do that anymore. 
but he's he's saying i lived my dream for a short time yeah you should go live your dream yeah that's good information like that's good advice friends i don't think we can ignore there's a little subtext all right so we're we're thinking like the 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 accusation is assault sexual assault of a young boy there's a couple of moments where um, in the description of how he loved his students um, on 856, in their feeling for the boys under their charge, such men are not unlike the finer sort of women in their love for men. So there is kind of a, there's an, first an effeminacy of those kinds of men and the introduction of heterosexual attraction. I, Haley, what do you think? I don't have a good feeling about it at all. Yeah. All throughout the time I was reading the text, I was like, his his like hands, like it made me nervous. And then once I read that line, I instantly like the whole rest of the way, like yeah. I read his whole description, like in probably the worst, the, the light you wish it wasn't. You wish that it wasn't that he actually, you know, was doing these things, but it, I mean, that's the thing about the language is it could be either way depending on how you read it and that seems intentional right mm -hmm. he intentionally wants us to have that that kind of doubt uh yeah well it could also be like nothing did happen but just the feeling that like that feeling becomes uh the the evil that has to be you know beat out or whatever I don't know. I want to make sure we get to some of your other questions too. Um, but I did want to maybe end with this idea of from the quote, shutting your ears to the roaring voices. Like if the theme of modernism is make it new, do differently, experiment, maybe that's good advice for a modernist writer, right? Shut your ears to those roaring voices and follow your dreams. Forget all that you have learned. Maybe I said it as a question mark. Does that sound right to you or is that okay? Yeah, all right, I'm with you. Okay, Ricky, your question was about, uh, oh, do you think Anderson wishes that someone treated him like a George Willard? Do you think Anderson and George Willard are the same person? Ricky, any ideas? My dogs are barking. Ricky, you're on mute. That is a great <laughs> question. Um, well, you asked it, sort of. <laughs> well, I didn't even think about like him being George Willard. Yeah. But I think, Definitely a similar person. Mm -hmm. A reporter, um, an observer, a writer. Yeah. But like, I mean, you show like, it said Anderson had like four different wives, but he left, he left his family late in his, like later in his, like he had a kid and a wife and he left them to go pursue his dreams. And I think sure. he feels guilty about that. Oh, So he wishes that he had he wishes that someone had told him earlier so he wouldn't have had the burden or the guilt that he had to live with. That's an interesting interpretation, Ricky, and I can kind of see how that goes, right? A lot of his biography that's given to us by the anthology is this kind of working class, working class background and how his education ended early so that he could go to work. And then his second attempt at education ended early so he could go to work. Um, and so maybe that connection to an earlier connection to education might have been desirable to him. Well, here's a spoiler alert about Winesburg, Ohio, is that all the stories are connected through George Willard. Did you notice that he's in both stories? 
and he doesn't need to be in the Alice story. He's not there. He's a boy. Like he didn't see it. He didn't report on it. What is his, why is he even there? Uh, and it's because he's in every story and he's kind of like that observer person who kind of collects. I don't know. That's an interesting form as well. Okay, I'm gonna speed up so that we can do adventure. Uh, but I think we've answered most of these questions already. But Haley, I would love for you to talk more about time because you asked that question about adventure too. So tell me what you're thinking about there. Um, I also think that with modernism, they get experimental about like structures and he gets experimental about time. Um, I thought it was really interesting that he, in a way, kind of was able to disguise himself with his age because he's only a 40 year old guy but he looks like he's 65. So it looks like he's had like, you know, all these years here when really he, you know, had a whole completely different part of his life not yeah. so long ago. Yeah, well, I noticed how much of it happens so early. So that happened 20 years ago, he's 40. So he was 20 at the time. So this period of his, his life must've been pretty short, you know, 1820, that would have been his full educational career. Uh, and yet it becomes the defining time of his life. Um, any other ways that you see time being kind of played with or messed with? Yeah, Ricky, what are you thinking? Like, so it's almost as if he's living in exile of his yeah. old hometown. And so the days seem longer yeah. to him and everything seems so much longer because he can never, he knows he can never go back. Mm. except that he does right he, he he can be transported to that time yeah. uh and i think dylan you wanted to talk about like why he has to leave so abruptly i wonder if he's time traveled <laughs> you know not literally <laughs> but, but in his memory you know he's gone back in time to that moment and nothing has changed right what do you think yeah i mean i, mean, I think kind of like with Haley's question, um, it just kind of just like popped into my head. Yeah. Like maybe he just, he's very guilty and that's why he's aged. Either he is guilty or he feels guilty, but I think it does not matter. I think either way, the consequences are the same. Uh, we've got lots of doubt about it. The doubt is maybe the point of the story rather than the yes or the no. Yeah, exciting stuff. All right, let's talk about adventure <laughs> with our last 20 minutes. Uh, what's, what's Alice's one thing out of proportion? What does she sort of fish eye on? Not a part of her body. Well, maybe a part of her body. What do you think, Ricky? Oh, Come I was on. supposed to let you summarize it first. My bad. Ricky, will you summarize the story first? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's this woman named Alice Hinman. And she lit so it actually mentions george willard early in the story yeah about she's a woman of 27 when george willard was a mere boy but um she was when she was like a young like a, a 16 to 18 year old she met this guy named ned and they were pretty clearly in a relationship ned would go, ned would go see her every night and then uh Ned wanted to go pursue a career in Cleveland, Ohio. And so on the night that he's supposed to leave or the next day he's supposed to leave the night before they, they go out and they take a drive and they have sex yeah. and 
she bas- she views Alice views it as kind of a bond that can never be broken between them. Yeah. And that that is pretty much the signal of they have to get married now. They are married now, and, it says. Yeah. Yeah, they are married. But and so and when Ned went to Cleveland, because Cleveland is still in Ohio, it provided more hope for them because Ned could send for her and it really wouldn't be that hard to do but it didn't work out in Cleveland for Ned he went to Chicago which is a lot farther away which means it's a lot more expensive yeah and Ned met people in Chicago and Alice just kind of faded away from his memory yes but but Alice uh continued to be obsessed with Ned thinking he was going to come home come back to her um when she was left alone in the store, she would cry and say, Ned, I'm waiting on you. Yeah. And then something really weird happens where it's almost like she has a mental breakdown and she goes out naked in the rain and starts running around and runs up to this old man. And then it's almost like she comes back to reality and she's like, what have I done? Yeah. And then... And it was, that was the weirdest the part. <laughs> yeah. The last yeah, night kinda... story gets me every time. Um, what's the matter with me? I'll do something dreadful if I'm not careful, she thought. And turning her face to the wall, began to try to force herself to face bravely the fact that many people must live and die alone, even in Winesburg. Um, Alice, gonna die alone, probably? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. All right, so uh, I think uh, Haley's question answers my question, which is the one thing that's out of proportion or the thing that she desires most. Haley, do you have an answer? Um, I would think her perception of love, um, her devotion, either way you kind of look at it, her view of marriage even, kind of all those things that revolve around love. Yeah, love, marriage, sex uh sexuality more broadly uh all of those things are kind of stuck ricky do you have an idea anything else to add to that list or does that sound right to you sounds pretty good to me okay (laughs) Haley, is this an adventure uh i don't know (laughs) i was so interested by why they called it an adventure because i knew that she was looking for this kind of like escape and maybe it was like a mental escape like a like I don't I don't know an adventure I'm I'm so confused by the term of it it wasn't really but it kind of was yeah Dylan do you have a thought it's like oh just such a long time period it's like mind-boggling to me like I mean I I give her credit like nine years yeah that that's insane I mean that's you know like in relationships like sometimes you know when people break up one person may be upset, may not be able to get over someone for a while. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm, I'm, that happens to tons of people, but sure. I mean, nine years, like yeah. that is insane. It's almost insanity to me. Right. To Ricky's point of like, maybe she had her mental breakdown and Haley, like, did she escape her senses? Is that what adventure means? Yeah. I wonder if there's something, you know, time bound about it, right? If as a 1916, 1914, sexual mores, uh, she might be forgiven for Mm -hmm. her thinking. Although I think the story also points to like 
that's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy for 1914. That's a little bit crazy for everybody. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so Ricky, your question was kind of about the timing of World War One. What do you, what sort of, what kind of connections are you making? So like, obviously World War One was going around around this time. And a lot of people were being drafted and shipped off to Europe that would never come back. And a lot of these kids were 18, 19, 20 years old, kind of the same age as Ned and Alice. And so maybe like, it's not, it's an indirect representation of, you know, the woman who thought that they were going to get married when their boyfriend came back from the war, yeah. but he died over there and he's never going to come back. Yeah. Or he met someone over there and he's never going to come back to her. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because totally that's a story, right? We know that story about soldiers and their, their widows, right? Or the women they leave behind. But he does not go to war, <laughs> which I think is a really interesting choice. How is it different that he goes to the city for work instead of to war? Maybe Haley, do you have an idea? Well, I agree that it's a very, I, by the way, I love the idea of World War One. I'm totally yeah. on board with you. I want to read it again, just with that viewing, because I love that idea. I think it's fantastic. But um, I will say that one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that she, um, when when he agreed he, he was going to leave, she said, you don't have to marry me. I'll come and work my own. I'll be independent. We'll just live together. Like, we'll just kind of have this, like, roommate relationship, but we'll still be together and that'll be okay. And it was interesting because she's willing to kind of break the norms. She's willing to kind of, you know, not do what you would normally expect of love or expect from their relationship. And he's the one that transitions it to, oh no, we have to be traditional. We have to do it the, the right way. I'm doing air quotes there. Um, it, yeah, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to live together and for you to be working and not be married and all of those things. So yeah, I don't think I answered your question, but I just no. had that idea pop up. <laughs> I think that's really interesting too. Well, it kind of explains why, uh, well, maybe it doesn't explain why. Like that before Ned, she was like, yeah, we could live together and that wouldn't be a problem and I wouldn't be weird about it. And then after she's like, oh no, I had sex with him, we're married. Mm -hmm. um, she's not cool the way she would have been cool uh, before. I'm so sorry that we're running out of time, but I wanna make sure that I get to um, some important questions. Maybe let's just focus on the end, the end. And what is she doing and why is she doing it? So she runs out naked in the rain and accosts a man. For what purpose? What is she doing? What do you think she's gonna do to him? I think she's gonna try to have sex with him. I think she's like, Ooh, I think she's ultra horny. I think she jumps out in the rain. And when she realizes, oh, I was about to just jump this guy's bones and I don't even know who he is. She's so horrified that she has to run back into the house. Yeah, no? What do you think? <laughs> 30 uh -huh. seconds, yes or no? <laughs> Dylan, what do you think? Yeah, honestly, kind of thinking the same thing. Like, yeah. it's been nine years. Yeah. She seems like at this point, like she just like needs affection. Yeah, yeah. So the adventure might be a sexual adventure. Uh, but of course, she says, no, no, no. She goes back home and she prepares to die alone. Um, what do you, is there a lesson well, there, Ricky? What I do think you it was definitely a sexual adventure. 
Yeah. I think it was definitely a sexual adventure because like she says, like, it kind of says in her mind, she's thought, what do I care who it is? He's alone and I will go to him. Like she, like they're going to be companions, whatever. And then maybe she realizes like, it's just going to hurt me like Ned hurt me. Yeah. And yeah. then she's like, I can't go through that again. I'm just going to die alone. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's again that that um, language thing where we she doesn't say I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go be with him. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, so uh, kinds of some questions. Okay, we're out of time. Gosh, any recommended media? I didn't update this slide either. Um, any like weird small town shows about the weirdnesses of small towns? It just makes me think of like Stephen King main settings, just weirdos. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. All right, watch some TV about weirdos. Uh, thank you, panelists. Thank you, listeners. Have a wonderful day.